because we were gone, my family, because we were gone last week, Sally and I are still playing a bit of catch-up in terms of our Christmas decorating. We, are, we, we hope to have our tree up this week, and that's always a very special event for our family this time of the year. Uh, this morning, though, uh, as we begin our Advent series, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that describes... <laughs> if you'll allow me to stretch this a little bit, that describes the most important Christmas tree of them all. The family tree of Jesus Christ. This passage is so often and so easily overlooked, but it is critical to our understanding of the identity of the person We celebrate each Christmas. We've titled, Andre and I, we've titled this three-part series, The King Has Come. Because as we will see here in Matthew over the next three weeks, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ announces that Jesus is King. Even the genealogy of Jesus, which we will consider today, Even the genealogy anticipates the arrival of the long-expected Messiah. So without further delay, let's read this together. I'll read it for us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, And Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 
14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you again for the time that we have this morning, the privilege, really, we have to gather as the people of God, your people, to hear again from your word and to learn again of your heart. We thank you for this time of the year when our attention is drawn in different ways and in new ways and very nostalgic and, and exciting ways. Our attention again is drawn to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his birth, to the reason behind his birth, to the incarnation itself. And I pray that as we consider this passage of Scripture today, that you, O Holy Spirit, that you have inspired and how you carried Matthew along as he wrote as he wrote it, I just pray that you would now help us in our hearing of it, in our understanding of it, and in our reception of its truth. So do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to the beauty and wonder of Jesus again today? For it is in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Earlier this year, uh, I was at uh, the playground with the kids, and I was, uh, we were at the swings, and I was pushing Phoebe and Elias and Sophia on three different swings at the same time. With great skill and purpose, you would have been very proud, moving from one to the next so as to time each push for maximum lift and efficiency, and after a few exhilarating moments, Phoebe and Sophia had their fill, and so they went off in another direction somewhere else, at which time another boy, about Elias' age, came and took one of the now-available swings that was seated uh, next to him. And these two boys hit it off, as kids tend to do when at the playground, And when they finished swinging, they took off in another direction as Elias turned and he said to me, Hey, Dad, we're going to run over there. Okay? And when Elias called me Dad, the other boy, who I didn't know and who didn't know me, said in utter disbelief, That's your dad? And at this time, I kid you not, the thought that ran through my head is he is about to say something really cool. Like he is about to say something um, that makes me look really cool in the eyes of my son. That's your dad? I thought that was your grandpa. And they ran off and they laughed, (laughs) leaving me stunned. (laughs) 
and all alone, <laughs> all alone to gather the broken pieces <laughs> of my mid-40s pride. But instinctively, without even realizing it, the boy was tracing our family tree in his mind. He knew that Elias and I were related, but he wasn't sure how we were related. And we do this all the time. When we see a group of people, we make mental connections about how they relate to one another. Either as friends or as members of the same family, or some other association that makes sense to us at the time. Because we all come from somewhere. We have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. So why does Matthew begin with a genealogy? For that matter, why does the entire New Testament begin in this way? It's because Matthew wants to show the essential connections between the person of Jesus and, and others from his earthly line. Because he knows, Matthew knows, that you cannot understand the birth of Jesus unless you see it in the grand scheme of the larger narrative of Scripture. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he wants to show the continuity between the Jewish scriptures that we know as the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus in the New. These 17 verses, and let's be honest, at first these, these may appear a bit laborious, maybe a bit insignificant, verses that, that we probably are, are tempted to just skip over as quickly as we can to get to the birth narrative itself. But these 17 verses, in many ways, summarize the story of the entire Old Testament, and they connect the Old Testament to the New. Matthew is saying that Jesus didn't just spring from nowhere. You can trace his family tree all the way back to David, their legendary and beloved king, and even back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. This is the point he makes in verse 1. And these, uh, so there are three sections here to this genealogy that center around these three key figures Abraham, David, Jesus. Matthew's purpose is not to give us a full genealogy. That's why we need to know that this isn't a comprehensive list. This is a selective list. Some names, some generations have been omitted. Because his purpose is to underline that Jesus is from the line of David and the line of Abraham because that was an essential requirement of the coming Messiah. Whatever else Jesus may have been or done during his earthly life, if he wasn't descended from David and Abraham, he could not be Messiah. So, Matthew is saying from the start that this Jesus 
whose gospel he is about to write is, is in fact the one they've been expecting all along. Today I want to consider five observations, five truths, five points to ponder concerning the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Number one, God's plan is perfectly revealed in Christ. God's plan is perfectly revealed in Christ. When the first humans chose their wisdom and their way over God's sin entered our world, and with it came all sorts of brokenness and separation, brokenness with one another and with God, separation between one another and God, even a sense of brokenness and separation within our own selves as sin and guilt and shame destroyed the peace and confidence and surety we once enjoyed with God. Amazingly, though, even when we fell from the glory for which we were made, God, when pronouncing the curse upon the serpent who deceived the man and the woman, God spoke of someone who would one day come to crush the serpent's head. The implication is that this person would defeat the serpent and and in so doing, uh, he would rescue those who had been captive to the serpent and, and the serpent's destructive ways and thus he would restore things to God's original intent. So I want you to picture Get a mental picture here of a timeline with all of these names attached to it. And everything that you know about these individuals attached to their name, the good and the bad, all the heartache and brokenness demonstrated in each of their lives, and realize that through it all, God was working His perfect plan through broken people to the arrival of Jesus Christ who would take all of that brokenness and repair our relationship with God. Ephesians 1.10 reminds us that God set forth this redemptive plan from the start, a plan, it says, for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, of course, the unfolding of the plan in real time, it was was not tidy. It was not perfectly linear. There were ups and there were downs. There were a lot of downs, just like life itself. Our tendency... Our tendency, though, is to become consumed with the here and now, and yet by this we are reminded that God sees it all at once, the end from the beginning and everything in the middle. So when you don't know what's going on, when it all seems lost and confusing and chaotic, we can take courage, we can take heart in knowing that your heavenly Father sees it all, and He knows it all, and He is working in ways we can't even fathom. He is working in and through it all for the ultimate good. His providences, from our perspective, seem tangled at times. 
They seem painful at times. They seem confusing in times, very untidy, certainly not the way that we would do it. But this genealogy is saying, among other things, that God's perfect plan is unshakable and it is perfectly revealed in Christ. Number two, God's promises never fail. Back in Genesis 12, God called called Abraham out from his land and his father's house, and God promised to give him land and a name and a nation, and that through his line all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This promise was solidified in the form of a covenant which we read in Genesis 15 and again 17. As the years rolled by from one generation to the next, God made good on his promise by providing land. God provided prominence. God provided national identity for the descendants of Abraham. Centuries later, when David was king and wanted to build a house for the Lord, God made covenant with David as well. And God didn't allow David to build the temple, remember. Instead, he told him that his son would build the temple. And more than that, God told David that he would build a house for David. Here David wants to build a house for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And I'm going to establish your throne forever. So the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is this interplay, this juxtaposition between its immediate fulfillment in David's son Solomon and its ultimate fulfillment in David's greater son, Jesus. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the great promises that God gave to Abraham and to David. Because through Jesus, the seed of Abraham, God has brought blessing to all peoples in all nations everywhere, just as he said he would. And Jesus, being a royal descendant of David, reigns today from a throne that will last forever and ever. God always keeps His word. His promises never wavered. Even during the time of national collapse and exile, alluded to here as the deportation. So this genealogy places God's faithfulness next to human faithlessness as a way of saying that God fulfills His promises to us because He is faithful even when we are not. Matthew wants you to know, Matthew wants you to know that God's promises are true and trustworthy and everything he is about to write about Jesus, everything he's about to say about Jesus is, is just as reliable because 
all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. We sit here today about 2,000 years removed from the earthly life of Jesus, looking back to his first coming and forward to his second. And I find it interesting that Abraham was also about 2,000 years removed from the arrival of Christ, from his first advent, from the birth of Jesus. And yet scripture says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so let us believe and trust and take confidence in God even today because His promises never fail. Number three, God's purposes transcend cultural lines. And in this case, lines of race and gender. There's something very odd about this genealogy. You probably saw it. Something that would have immediately caught the attention of the Jewish people. It's the inclusion of women and non-Jews. Genealogies typically trace the lineage down through the father, as Matthew does here. But the presence of five women is significant because women in that culture were not considered equals. Women were thought to be less than. In fact, it was common practice for a Jewish male to thank God that he was not born a woman. Or a Gentile. And yet Matthew includes not only women, but even Gentile women. What's even more astounding is the particular women he chose to include. Tamar. Tamar, if you know the story, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to deceive or seduce her father-in-law, Judah. They had incestuous sexual relations which resulted in the birth of twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Rahab was a prostitute. She didn't have to pretend to be one. She was one. And she was a Canaanite one at that. Ruth was more noble. In Scripture, she appears sweet and noble, but she was a Moabite, and the Moabites were bitter enemies of the Israelites historically, and yet here she is included in the Messianic bloodline. Bathsheba, interesting, she isn't even mentioned by name, but she's definitely present there in verse 6. She is the wife of Uriah, and the mother of Solomon by David. Bathsheba was an adulteress. 
She was complicit with David in his sin of adultery and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. And then we come to Mary, of course. Mary, Mary is the most familiar to us. But aside from her relation to Jesus, there is nothing noteworthy about her life. She was just a common teenager from a nowhere town. For Matthew to include not just five women, but these five women is significant. I think these are stories you'd expect to find on shows like Dateline or 2020. Certainly not what you'd expect to read in the genealogy of the long-expected Messiah. And yet, thankfully, God's purposes transcend cultural lines of race and gender. Hear that. And as seen in the next point, even those lines we tend to draw around moral and ethical character. Point number four, God's love extends to real people, not perfect people. Jesus' earthly lineage is checkered with imperfect people. Severely flawed people. In some cases, downright treacherous people. It contains, frankly, it contains people we wouldn't put on this list. You've all got that relative that you're not particularly proud of. Here are some people who are known, many of them known more for their sin and rebellion toward God than their faith in God. The line of Jesus is full of disreputable people who uh, we would probably exclude or fail to mention if we were tracing our own ancestry. Time won't allow us to explore each of these names, but here are just a few. Jacob, you know the story, Jacob intentionally deceived his aging father. Can you imagine taking advantage of your aging father just to steal your older brother's birthright? Judah was so jealous of his brother Joseph that he led the charge to sell him into slavery, and we've already touched on his encounter with Tamar. Jesse wouldn't even acknowledge his son David at first. He parades all of his other sons before Samuel, not even thinking of David. David's just an afterthought to Jesse when Samuel comes to anoint one of his sons to the thrones of Israel. Solomon. Solomon started so well. Solomon chose wisdom over riches. And God gave him both. And yet by the end of his life, Solomon wasn't even walking with God. 
because his wealth and his many wives had turned his heart. Most of the kings mentioned here were evil and terribly immoral. These are not untarnished heroes. In many cases, they aren't heroes at all. They are people whose lives were characterized by sin, and, 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 and this includes even Abraham and David, the two most prominent names mentioned here. Abraham had a habit of lying. He lacked integrity in this way, fearful of what the Egyptians would think. She's not my wife, she's my sister. Hey, Sarah, tell them you're my sister. He lacked patience with God's promise of a chosen child, tried to make it happen in his own strength by having sexual relations with a servant girl. David, he started very well, but it certainly didn't end well. An adulterer, a conspirator, a murderer, a home wrecker. Even his own home and family was a total mess by the end of his life. If anything jumps off the page in this genealogy, it's that human sinfulness is apparent throughout. And yet so is God's love and God's grace. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the fact that I can read this list And I don't see a list of perfect people. I see a list of people like me. I see a list of people who need God's love and grace just as much as they did. God's preservation of Jesus' line isn't because of the people's righteousness, quite the opposite. It is in spite of their sinfulness. This genealogy is a story of sin abounding, but in the birth of Jesus Christ, we learn that God's grace abounds even more. In fact, I think uh, Alistair Begg once put it this way, if if Jesus had such individuals, individuals like this, as his forebearers, Let's not be surprised that he has individuals like this as his followers. This is the great hope of the Christian gospel. The great message of the gospel. Though our sins are many, God's grace is more. We stand today on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our moral perfections. Our hope is not in our ability to follow God. Our hope is not in our good works. Matthew is introducing us to the one who is a friend of sinners, who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our hope 
is on the grace of God. And when we are with God in glory, think about this, when we are with God in glory, even after 10 million years, we will still stand by grace and grace alone. This is the love of God. This is the love of God revealed to us in Christ. God is not constrained by my sin, by my failure to follow Him as I ought. So you need not be paralyzed by your past either, sins you have committed or those that have been done to you. Just reach out to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and grab hold of Him by faith. God's plan is perfectly revealed in Christ. God's promises never fail. God's purposes transcend cultural lines. God's love extends to real people, not perfect people, because, number five, God's Son is the sovereign Savior. In verse 16, Matthew introduces Jesus to us as... The Christ. The one who is called Christ. The word Christ comes from Christos, a Greek word meaning anointed. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah. So to be the Christ or Messiah is to be the anointed one of God. But what does that mean? Well, to be anointed literally is to have sacred oil poured on one's head, signifying that God has chosen that person for a specific task. Kings were commonly anointed like this. At their coronation, for instance, just as important as receiving a crown was receiving the anointing of God. The biblical imagery of the Christ, therefore, is that of a king chosen by God. That's why when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God. Essentially, he's saying, I'm here. And because he is one with God, of the same nature as God, God's kingdom is His kingdom, which means that Jesus Himself is King. This makes the birth of Jesus all the more amazing because the divine King of the entire universe freely chose to enter His creation as a human being like us. He was born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit, making Him both human and divine, born into this human lineage that Matthew details here as as, as messy and untidy and sin-stained as it is. He became like us even in this way. And yet born not with a sinful nature like ours. 
from conception. He was sanctified by the Spirit of God. And he lived by the Spirit's presence and power each day, fully surrendered to the will of God the Father, so that though he was tempted in every way, just as we are, he never once committed a single sin. This is the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of the birth and life and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. King Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He entered our human plight to save us from all the brokenness and separation caused by sin and to save us to God, to a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father through His sacrificial death on the cross and His subsequent resurrection from the grave. And after securing the salvation and rescue of all who place their trust in Him, this Jesus, this King, took His rightful place upon His throne and He reigns today and forevermore He will reign. Scripture says that God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. How how many? Whose knees? Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue. Whose tongue? How many tongues? Every single tongue tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This child whose birth we celebrate is the sovereign Savior. To serve. Bring life and hope where there was only death and despair. The genealogy of Jesus anticipates the arrival of the long expected Messiah and the very word Christ. The very word just calls us, it beckons us, in fact it welcomes us and it invites us to yield to his lordship and submit our lives to its reign. To say, yes, Jesus, you are king, not only king of this universe, Jesus, you are king of my life. Is that you? Are your is your name If we were to continue this genealogy down through the generations is your name included in the line of Christ? 
Are you part of the redemptive lineage of Jesus? Have you ever asked Him to be your peace, your hope, your assurance, your acceptance, your forgiveness? Do you know Him as your Savior? And yield to Him as your King. we begin this Advent series. Knowing that the King has come, I want to end by just encouraging you to find your identity in Jesus today. Praise God, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you just a couple of moments of quiet. that you can just respond to the Lord as the Spirit of God is prompting you. Maybe there's something you're holding on to. Maybe, it's, maybe you're holding on to a, a good work, this sense of self-righteousness, your own self-righteousness. You're clinging to it so hard, you're white-knuckled. Maybe the Spirit of God even now is just telling you to let that go. Because only Jesus can save. Maybe you're holding on to a past sin, and the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment is just plaguing you. Satan is using that against you to speak lies into your life. And it's holding you back, and the Lord is saying to you, let that go. Come and take and find your identity in me. And so, Heavenly Father, I just pray. I would pray that you would help us today to come to a place of full and free and glad surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to see him in all of His beauty, and to hear His invitation and to come again and be, not only to be made right with You, but to know Your love anew and afresh even today. Do this, we ask, for the good of Your people and for the honor of your name. Amen.